about how we're to live out our Christian life. And we've been looking at it under the heading of the bigger picture. Um, And we've called it the bigger picture because for for most of us, um, our vision is quite small when when we're first saved. We're conscious that God has forgiven us our sins, that we've joined the church. But Paul said there's so much more and it's like he pulls back the curtain and he reveals so much of what God has revealed to him, which he calls mysteries that have been um, made, were secret in ages uh, past because God kept them, to, kept them to himself. But now he's revealed those secrets to the apostles and prophets. And Paul, in the first part of this book, he tells us about the wonders of what it is to be in Christ, uh, what it is to be a child of God, adopted as God's son. And also about our future. Uh, He says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. That we are even seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So secure is our salvation, so secure is our future that he can write in those terms. He also tells us that that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a deposit of the good things that we're going to receive Uh, in the age to come. The age to come is breaking into this age, particularly through the church, but we are to receive those things and we have that down payment. So Paul talks in really extravagant terms. He couldn't find any more extravagant terms to talk about the wonders of what it is to be a Christian and to be in Christ. The second half is about how we apply that in our lives. It's almost saying, this is what God has done and because of that, This is how you need to live. Different from the people around you. You're not to follow the practices of the people around you, but you're to live differently because God has made you uh, to be different. And uh, and also, more recently, uh, we looked at how that was worked out in families, in in husbands and wives and children, and also in the workplace. And the last time we looked at Ephesians, which was two weeks ago, David took us through the last part of chapter 6 where Paul (coughs) talks about the Christian's armour. He says, put on the full armour of God so that you may be able to withstand, may be able to stand in the evil day. And um, Paul encourages us to take advantage of all the resources that we have in Christ. What he describes in terms of the Christian's armour is what the gospel is all about. It's about salvation and faith and so on. And um, we have to stand our ground against the forces that are against us. And it's important to remember that although all the teaching in Ephesians can be taken personally, Paul, his writing, he's addressing a church. And so together we need to stand against the devil's schemes. And so much of what we've been looking at is what we are together as a people. And um, the Roman soldier... Um, is probably the image that Paul has in his mind. The Roman soldier in those days had a very large shield, a huge great rectangular thing. And whilst that protected him personally, um, very often in the course of battle, the Roman soldiers would link their shields and form a great wall, even putting some over the top, so that when the enemy fired their flaming arrows, then as a company of people, as a body of soldiers, they could be protected because they stood together. And we need to stand together 
because of the devil's schemes. And he loves to mess up God's shop window. We've talked about the church as being God's visual aid and God's shop window. The devil loves to mess that up because we are the, the message to the world. It's through the church that God's message comes to the world. So it's very important that we stand together. And he told, Paul told the Ephesians to stand. Well, did they stand? And did they survive into the future? Perhaps it might be good at this point just to ask ourselves the question, um, where will the Beacon Church be in 10, 20, 30, or maybe 40 years' time when another generation has arisen? Will we still be here? Now, we have to say that there might be, if we're not here, there might be a good reason why we're not here. We might, in God's plan, have united with another fellowship to, to be a more greater impact in our community or whatever. So there might be good reasons. But sadly, as over the history of the church, there are unfortunate reasons why churches die. Uh, they just kind of fade away or close. And I've just put a few down and you might think of some others. Failure to attract new people. Yes, they preach the gospel, but they're not able to contextualise that in the next generation. They can't communicate with the next generation. It might be that existing members are drawn away by bigger churches. And this happens in towns and cities. Uh, There are a number of perhaps smaller churches. A big church emerges in the city or in the town and they have all sorts of programs and activities that the smaller churches can't provide. And very often people are kind of sucked into the bigger churches, sometimes quite almost legitimately, that parents say, well, look, you can't provide something for my teenagers, but this big church over here can, and I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to move there for that reason. So it may be that that causes churches to decline. It may be that they lack suitable leadership, that the new generation has arisen, uh, the old leadership needs to retire and there's no suitable leadership. Maybe liberal teaching, it, they have liberal teaching that compromises with the world. They started with the word of God as being the absolute standard, the plumb line by which they governed everything in church life and what they taught. But in order perhaps to try and accommodate the world, then they'd watered down the gospel. And of course if you water down the gospel, it's no gospel at all. It's, it's, it's no gospel, it's the whole gospel or not at all. And in fact, um, the people outside don't want wishy-washy Christianity. I've heard people on the television criticising the church, not because they preach the gospel, but because they don't cr- preach the gospel. And the people want us to be different. It might be internal power struggles. Sadly, these things happen in churches. People who've been members of churches for years and have been given responsibility... Um, they jealously guard those responsibilities and when the church wants to move on and to change and to adapt they say no, no, you know, that's not the way we do it and they struggle and sometimes those internal power struggles destroy the church. Or maybe it's persecution. There is tremendous persecution around the world still um, against churches and against Christians. I mean, Nigeria would be Northern Nigeria would be a particular example where church buildings are burnt and people are killed and so on. And maybe that causes the church to decline and, uh, and to fail. But interestingly, in many places, persecution strengthens the church. It refines the church 
And there are places where there is persecution and the church is growing rapidly. So it's not necessarily persecution. So there are some possible ideas why a church may decline. But back to the Ephesian church. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we have the risen Christ in all his glory appearing to the Apostle John. And John, who had lived in in Ephesus for some time, he he is banished, he is in exile uh, on the island of Patmos because he preached the gospel, because of the testimony uh, of Jesus. And Jesus appears to him and he tells him, I want you to write to the seven churches of Asia and I will dictate to you what I want you to say. And what we have there is Jesus' assessment of how these churches are doing. Now, what we think of the church or what the people outside us think of the church is one thing, but what Jesus thinks of the church is far more important. And Ephesus is the first church that he addresses. And there's some good news. They've done some things well and he commends them for it, but there's also some bad news. <clears throat> and the, pro- <clears throat> excuse me, the problem is so great that Jesus says, if you don't repent... I'm going to close you down. It's so great, this problem. I'm going to close you down. And um, it's something that is not one of those things that I mentioned in that list. Nothing to do with those things. And in fact, it's more fundamental than any of those things, but not so obvious. It isn't so obvious. This church, Ephesus church, by the time Jesus makes this assessment, on the outside looked pretty good. They were very busy and um, <clears throat> keeping uh, the, the doctrines clean, as it were. But uh, there was something at the heart that was a problem. Now, Paul had invested much in this church, and we can read about how the church came into being in chapters 18 to 20 of the Acts of the Apostles. And what we find is that Paul had a very successful ministry there in Ephesus, working alongside Aquila Uh, and Priscilla, uh, and a guy called Apollos. And a a great church was established there. And we can see that Paul's success was represented in having opportunities to teach in the debating hall there, Um, miracles attributed to him, people abandoned their magic practices and brought all their paraphernalia, and they burnt them in the town square, um, turning to Christ, absolutely wonderful. And um, Ephesus was the centre of the worship, was of worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis, and there was an amazing temple there in those days. And uh, people used to come from far and wide in order to to venerate this uh, this goddess. And people are there living by making uh, little silver shrines, uh, and so it was a very good trade for a number of people. But as people became Christians, they didn't want the silver, the silver shrines. And so the business of these people uh, went downhill and they caused a riot. They complained about it and caused a riot. But nevertheless, uh, a great church was established there uh, in Ephesus. <clears throat> and it was on his, Paul's third missionary journey that he spent most of his time there. And when that time came to an end and he was going to... <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Return to Jerusalem. He he gathers the elders of the church together because he's got some last things to say to them. Probably they were um, uh, there were various congregations around the city um, with elders over those congregations 
but it was one church and he gathered them all together. And I'd like us to turn to Acts 20, please. Because this gives a very good commentary on Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And we can look from Acts 20, verse 17. And we'll see what Paul's concerns were for the future of this church. What he thought might be a threat to them. Verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. That is the bigger picture. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companion. In everything I did I showed you that by this kind of hard work we may help the weak. Remembering the words of our Lord Jesus himself, it's more blessed to give give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept and embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So we see from there that Paul is concerned about false teachers who would come in. Some of them would arise from among their own number. That was his concern, that the gospel would be watered down or distorted in some way. And if that happens, it's not going to save anybody. And he wants this church to continue to be uh, the deposit of the glorious gospel that saves people. And uh, what we find is, this is still on Paul's mind when he writes to Timothy. It's only a couple of verses, so don't bother to look this up, but... This is what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, you may remember, was uh, one of Paul's travelling companions and Paul saw him as a son in the faith. He, he, he treated him like a son. 
in, in the faith. And Timothy was like an apostolic delegate and Paul was happy to leave Timothy to carry on the work knowing that Timothy would uh, follow Paul's ways in Christ and represent the gospel in, in the way that Paul did. And this is what he writes to Timothy. I urged you when you went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. So he's concerned still about false teaching and he asked Timothy to make sure that uh, it's put down. So how was this church doing some 30 years later when the risen Lord Jesus appears uh, to John? Um, what's, what's the Lord of the church's assessment? Um, had they heeded Paul's warnings about false teachers? Had Timothy uh, been successful in keeping the plumb line of scriptures clean um, and free from controversy? Well, um, we now turn to Revelation chapter 2. You like to do that in your Bibles? <clears throat> well, we'll look at what Jesus has to say. Now, undoubtedly, these letters were meant to be read widely um, because the last um, verse, verse 7, um, says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So um, although they were addressed to a particular church, um, they were meant to be more widely read. And of course, they are absolutely relevant for us today. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Well, the seven stars refer to the leaders of the churches. Now, do you think your leaders are stars? Oh, well, it's not that kind of star, no. But this is how it's described. And the churches themselves are referred to as lampstands. That's a good description for the church. As a people, we're meant to be a city set on a hill, um, shedding light into darkness. And Jesus is walking uh, among the churches. This tells us there is absolute ownership um, of these churches by Jesus. He's not remote from the church. He's there in the midst of the churches. And these leaders that he holds in his hand, um, you remember that um, we read there from Acts 20, the Holy Spirit made these people leaders. They were, he was the one who indicated who should be leaders of these churches. The Holy Spirit made them overseers. And um, these churches existed uh, to be a city set on a hill. So Jesus is in the midst of his church and he says this, I know your deeds. How would we feel if somehow Jesus appeared here and he said to us, I know your deeds? Would we get a knot in our stomach or would we say, fine Jesus, that's great, just, just carry on? I don't know. But he's talking, of course, to the church. I looked up in the dictionary what, what a deed was. It's a thing done intentionally or consciously, a brave, skillful, or conspicuous act. It's something done deliberately, not by accident. And so I think we see from verse 2 that this was an active church. Uh, your hard work and your perseverance, he says. I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. 
um, they were not just reacting to circumstances, they were a very busy and active church. I remember some years ago that um, uh, I, I knew somebody in Canterbury and I heard that they'd, they'd gone into the Anglican ministry. It doesn't matter that it's Anglican, it could have been any. And um, I happened to see them sometime afterwards and I said to them, oh, good to see you, I understand you're now leading a church. I said, how's the church doing? Oh, he said, it's just ticking over. And I thought, just ticking over? We're supposed to be changing the world and your church is ticking over. This church was not ticking over. We may assume that they were preaching the gospel and um, even though the going was tough, perhaps it was persecution. Um, they had to per- persevere in the face of persecution. But it's clear they had a good grasp of the apostolic doctrine, the truth of the gospel, and they were able to refute those who came with another gospel. Because he says, I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. So you could say, um, yes, they followed Paul's teaching, and no matter how hard it was, um, they have followed, they'd heeded Paul's teaching, and Timothy's leadership seems to be effective. And in the terms that Paul writes in the letter that we've been studying over the weeks, um, they would be mature um, because they are able um, to withstand false teaching. Let me just read you a little bit from chapter 4 um, to put that into context uh, of, um, of, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You remember in chapter 4 it tells us, Paul tells us that the risen Christ has given gifts to the church and these gifts are men, they are ministries. And he says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And how do we know they're mature? Because then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. They had withstood this. They had not been blown around by every wind of teaching. So we could say, well done church and well done Timothy for keeping them in line. So this was a church that was busy with the work of the kingdom. They were clear about doctrine um, and so they were not in danger perhaps of the Lord's judgment because of sloppy teaching or laziness in any way. Over the years I've experienced um, what you might call church health checks that um, usually we've organised it ourselves as leaders. We've listed, uh, drawn up a list of all the activities of the church um, including leadership style and worship and children's work and, and outreach and all those sort of things. And we've called a few people from among the church and said, you know, give us your assessment as to how we're doing with these, on these things. And it's been very useful to get other people's view. And we've said, be absolutely honest. If you feel there's been something lacking in the leadership, please say so. And that's been very helpful. You might get somebody from another church to do that on your church, and it's very good. But I have to say that the next criteria that Jesus uses to judge the church at Ephesus, we never used. We never thought about this criteria. And this is what he says. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. They're active, they're busy, they're holding true to the gospel, but they have abandoned or forsaken 
their first love. What is it? What is this first love? Well, we're not actually told, but I think that we might assume that it's unrivaled love for Jesus. I think that's fair, don't you, to say that our first love is that? The church, uh, it seems, is made up of individuals who had forgotten what drew them to faith in the first place. Now, we may, we, we may be attracted to the gospel um, by all sorts of means, attracted to the gospel and the church. Maybe we have a particular need and the church is able to meet that. Maybe, like we've been talking recently, about debt counselling and helping people with their debts and maybe that would be a problem and, and somebody would be helped by the church and be introduced to the gospel. Maybe we're introduced to the gospel through a friend uh, or, or something like that or we've been on an alpha course or so on. But when it actually comes to it, we have to come to a point where we realise that naturally we're God's enemy and that we need our sins forgiven, that we need to be saved, um, that we need what Jesus came to give us, which is salvation, that we need to take advantage of the grace of God and we need to welcome the Lord Jesus into our lives. We're not saved because we have a, a, a zeal for doctrine or we have a zeal for good works. Or, or, although these things are important, we're saved because of welcoming the glory and goodness of Jesus into our lives. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we saw something of the glory of God when we were saved in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's where we continue to see the glory of God. The Ephesian church, it would seem, had ceased to gaze on him and love for him had ceased to be their primary motivation for living out the Christian life. They'd lost their preoccupation uh, with Jesus. They'd lost their preoccupation with getting to know him better. And you might know this was Paul's preoccupation. He writes to the church at, at Philippi. He says, that I might know him. Now, Paul, of all people, knew Jesus, but he wanted to know him more. And that was the goal of his faith. He, this was the upward call of God. And what was that for? To know Jesus perfectly. So he had a longing in his heart. He had a preoccupation to, to know Jesus. And in the letter that we were studying, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he, he has two prayers that he prays for the church. They're not about evangelism or works or organisation or anything else. They're about knowing Jesus. In chapter 1 we read, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Then in chapter 3, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We see our hearts as the centre of our affections. You know, I love you with all my heart. So it's the centre of our affection. 
that, that Christ may dwell in the centre of our affection. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. So that was Paul's prayer, that they might know Jesus more, that they might love him more. Something I noticed, and I've only just noticed it in preparing for this, that the last verse of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verse 24 of of, uh, chapter 6, after having talked about the cut and thrust of of spiritual warfare, um, armory, praying in the spirit, and all these things. This is what, how Paul finishes up. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That, that's what he leaves with them. And that the grace that we receive from God is linked to our love for Jesus. And, and that's, that's what he tells us here. And the ultimate goal of our faith is to know Jesus perfectly. And Jesus himself, when he prayed the night before he was crucified with his disciples present, he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is about knowing Jesus. Jesus is our prize. He's the reward that we will have. He is our prize. Getting to know him better now uh, means that we'll know him more perfectly when we see him face to face. John writes, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So our hope of seeing Jesus, of knowing him perfectly, motivates us in our lives. It motivates us to purity and to service and love. And whilst it's true that Jesus loves the church and wants us to love the church also, If we love the church more than him or instead of him, we will soon be disappointed and even disillusioned. You know, if our attention is always on the church and not on Jesus, we will be disappointed. The church is not perfect. Have you discovered that? We are not perfect together, are we? It has its ups and downs, its faults and failings. And relationships are sometimes sorely tested. Loving others can be hard at times. However, our love for Jesus cannot be separated from our love for the church or, in particular, love for one another, for other Christians. Unless loving Jesus is our primary motivation, we're likely to throw in the towel. And some people do. Church? No, I've had enough. I've had enough. Can't stand it anymore. Throw in the towel. But with love for Jesus, we're okay. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If we love him, the more we love him, 
the more we will obey his command and the more we will love other people. That's reasonable to, to deduce that from there, isn't it? John says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Maybe the Ephesians' loss of love for Jesus was seen in their lack of love for one another. We don't know. We don't know what it is. But it's clear from the New Testament that everything that we do as Christians, we are to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are to do out of love for him. And if we're able to do this, it it has the potential to transform the most menial and irksome task into a joy because the task is not (coughs) the focus. (coughs) The focus, excuse me, is Jesus. And also, we're able to love people that we would not naturally relate to because as we love them in Jesus' name, we begin to see Jesus in them Uh, and, and that makes it so much easier. The Ephesian church began well. Love for Jesus was at the centre of their life together. Jesus said to them, in a sense, remember what it was like. Look how far you have fallen. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. I don't know, maybe Jesus had ceased to be the centre of their worship. Now, we, we can get in this trap as well, um, that that we can be so tied up with the mechanics of what it is to worship and and what we understand by worship these days, that um, actually the the, the focus of our time is on the mechanics and not on on Jesus himself. And there's no acknowledging of his presence. I think um, we we live in a day when we we are fortunate to have lots of facilities to help us in our worship. Uh, we have increasingly skillful musicians, we have all the paraphernalia of the PA and all the kind of presentations and the modern equipment that we can use. But it is possible that that becomes our focus and it's about, it's about performance rather than presence. But worship is about acknowledging the presence of Jesus. Ivan and I yesterday went to a worship conference up in Sidcup which was really very helpful and Nick Sharp, who leads the church in Nottingham, uh, he was talking a, a bit about this. And he said, when they started the church in Nottingham, for, for years they had no musicians, no instruments, they just worshipped God as a company of people. And what he said was that gave people ownership and we learned to rely on the Holy Spirit and not all that was going on at the front. He said, we now have musicians, we now have worship leaders and all the time. But he was so concerned that Jesus should be the focus of their worship right from the outset of this church that he said, no instruments at all. So, how does a church lose its first love? Well, it may be because there's a a focus on these things. It may be that when the church was birthed, it was out of a, 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 a passionate uh, desire to preach the gospel in an alien environment and people fought to establish a church there and, and probably suffered much in order to, to establish a Christian church which happens around the world. But successive generations who um, uh, inherit all the good 
things about that church didn't have to go through that. And uh, perhaps for, for many of them, they don't understand the battles that were fought in order to establish the church. And their passion is a lot less than those who, who um, uh, brought about the church in the first place. It may be that a church in developing a particular ministry, uh, which involves programs and buildings and equipment, uh, sees these things in a, as an end in themselves. That fundraising projects become the focus instead of the importance of worshipping Jesus and having faith in God. Um, But of course churches are made up of individuals and perhaps it's at the individual level that this particular word from Jesus to the church um, becomes most challenging. Now let me just make a point here before I draw to a close, which I need to do. Jesus is not talking about people's personal faith. He's not saying to individuals, I will destroy your faith. What he's saying is that the church, which is God's visual aid, the shop window in this particular location, is not shining the right kind of light. It's not giving the right message. And for that reason, he will close it down. Not not that the individual Christians will lose their faith. They'll probably find churches elsewhere. So it's important to make that point. But churches are made up of individuals. So as I close, um, I'm going to ask some questions as much of myself uh, as of you. Firstly, what motivates us most as Christians? What, what, What motivates us as Christians? Now, it will be a number of things, and that will be quite legitimate. But is, is it love for Jesus that motivates us most? When you were coming this morning, when you were coming, were you thinking, I'm going to meet with Jesus this morning? All right? Or were you thinking, I've got this to do, I've got me thinking I've got a sermon to preach, uh, I've got all this to do. But, you know, we, we're coming to meet with, with him. We've got a new song, haven't we? I've come to meet with you. Was that, on, was that in your minds when you came this morning? I've come to meet with Jesus this morning. So, and then in other things that we do, the way we serve in the church, is it our love for Jesus that motivates us? Secondly, how dependent are we for our spiritual life and health on what the church is doing and how it meets our needs? Now, of course, it's right that we meet one another's needs. Particularly for new Christians, we need to help one another. But we sing a song that says, you are all I need, referring to Jesus. How much do we draw on him? How much does our love for him sustain us in our Christian life? Or how much do we depend on other people? Is the only time we worship when we come on a Sunday or when we go to cell? Or do we find times in our own personal devotions to worship Jesus? Thirdly, do we still have a desire to know Jesus better? Or do we say, no, I've got through that. I I learnt about Jesus when I got saved and I think I know most of that now. The Bible talks about growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never gave up and it's something we can go on doing, knowing more about him, learning more about the Lord Jesus. And we need to think, how do we do that? How do we pursue this? How do we pursue this knowing of Jesus so that we love him more? And that's a good question to ask ourselves. Fourthly, if we have withdrawn from church or individual Christians because they've offended us or not met our expectations 
and we've not found it in our hearts to forgive, how, we, how will we answer to Jesus when we meet him face to face? Sometimes people have come to me and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm leaving the church. So-and-so spoke to me and it was most out of turn and I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I can't, can't live with this, I'm, I'm going. I've never said it to them, but I've said, here's Jesus standing in the midst of us. Will you say that to him? Will you say that the church that he died for, that you're going to give up on it so easily because somebody offends you? And I think we have to say, it's only love for Jesus that will keep us in in those circumstances. But the good news is that we see from the way Jesus addressed the church at Ephesus that as serious and fundamental as their shortcoming was, his judgment was not final. He says, repent and do the things that you did at first. There was a way back. There's always a way back. There's always an opportunity for a fresh start. God never brings these things to our attention and brings us under conviction to condemn us, but to help us to move on to say, put the past behind and to move on. And so to us, Jesus calls us to return, if necessary, to a loving pursuit of him through prayer, worship and his word. And I think also loving other people. The last word from Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father God, we thank you that you've not given us a set of rules, um, Lord, to live by, but you've given us a person, the glorious, wonderful Lord Jesus. Forgive us that we have not given him the attention we should. Forgive us, Lord, when we've been distracted and we've pursued other things as if they were so important that they were life-changing things. And yet, Lord, we know that pursuing him, the saviour of the world, is to be most life-changing. Lord, that as we gaze into his face, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, help us. We're frail, we're weak, we fail in this, but help us, we pray, in in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Karma's gone, but I'd like us to sing one song, please. All All I once held dear. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing.